Files on Double J. Yeah, yeah, like I said, you are really fit. But my gosh, don't you just know it. I'm not trying to pull you. Hi, Gemma Pye here. Welcome to the J-Files podcast. Now, after years out of the game, we're welcoming the streets back to Australia at this year's Splendour in the Grass Festival. Their first shows here since 2011. So what better time to dive into the career of Mike Skinner and the streets? That's a beautiful thing. Thanks for coming out to see us. His story is full of twists and turns, from bedroom recordings in Birmingham to becoming a worldwide success. But did it bring him happiness? Mike recently joined me on the phone from his home to talk about his life and career so far, from the early days in that English city to philosophising on how to keep his common connection with fans. It's deeply thoughtful and humbling, and you'll hear it throughout this episode. To kick off, I asked him to take us back to the city of Birmingham when he first started out. It was strange. I mean, now Birmingham is very exciting. I mean, and Manchester is as well. But it it wasn't like that when I was a kid. It was a it was a sort of like post-industrial place where it, it didn't feel like you could be successful in, in music. Um, I mean, obviously, we've done really well at rock music and 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 even sort of reggae music as well but but there you know no one even dreamed that there would ever be a rapper from Birmingham when I was growing up and what I did probably wasn't even rap either but but there are definitely rappers now very respected from Birmingham and Manchester so I really had to sort of make it work as sort of wider music that sort of worked in a different way you know you couldn't just like rap and just get it done like you like you can now this ain't your archetypal street sound scan for ultrasounds north south east west and all round and then to the underground yeah it was a lot of you know coming to london and you know because obviously you had to be signed and you had to have your pictures in in magazines and stuff i'm making a film at the moment and it and it feels quite similar to how it was when I started the streets because you you have to um, you have to just like meet up with people and work out how you're going to sort of do it in, in the sense that you know we had to have someone make it was like CDs wasn't it and records so you have to people have to manufacture the CDs you have to get someone to distribute the CDs try to get the DJs to play it. It was a bit more of a sort of a business, whereas um, now it's a bit more like just do something really wavy and and hope that you um, get a lot of YouTube views, you know. Mm. And then and then once you've got a load of YouTube views, then go and make it pay. Yeah, all these kids who are you know headlining festivals before they've even played a live show. Well, I mean, that to be honest, that was me. The first UK show I did was at Reading. It was a big stage. You know, I'm no different, really, to, to that. I wasn't going to perform live, and then someone convinced me to do it. And then I actually sort of enjoyed it, really. So we ended up um, doing it more. Look, it's scary with my brandy. The rock and roll cliche walks in and then smack me. 
take me back to, you know, this, the start of the streets, you know, how it came to be on that Reading stage. I mean, I was working with a lot of rappers. I guess I sort of thought that there was a tiny bit of trying to be American or, or not even just trying to be American, just I guess just trying to be tough, really. And I just listened to that music. I never went to nightclubs, really. I mean, I DJ now a lot, so I kind of spend most of my life in nightclubs now. But back then, I guess I just sort of imagined in my head this, this like rap music where it's like all the problems were just a bit more um, close up and just sort of indoors mm. because it's a, it's a different culture. So I sort of did it myself and I guess it came out a bit odd. And then it became popular, you know, the, the first song, yeah, went into the charts. And then it was really just a case of not so much trying to get attention, but trying to sort of not mess it up, really. Right, so just uh, to keep the momentum rolling. Yeah, and to, and to build the story, if you like, or, you know, tell different stories. It's just don't, don't mess it up. <laughs> yeah. Did you have grand plans with it? Were there aspirations or were you just making it like as a hobby? I think everyone dreams of being a rock star, you know. I knew that I was going to be really unhappy if I wasn't able to um, make it work somehow. But I think I probably thought that I would end up working in a music shop or something, you know, um, which I probably would have been happy with, to be honest. You rain down curses, but I'm waving your hearses driving by. Streets riding high with the beats in the sky. I'd love you to take me to, you know, tinkering around with music for the first time. What sort of setup did you have? Yeah, I mean, it was um, tape. It was right when, I guess, computers were first being used. I had, like, samplers and stuff. I don't know. I mean, it was, it was, just, um, it was just a very physical thing back then. Mm. And... and um, and I was never really that into it. I mean, in the sense that I wanted it to be as easy as possible. And I think that um, the more that you could use a computer, the, the more simple it became. I make stuff on phones now, you know, I mean, it's so easy. So um, I think it can be really nostalgic to, um, you know, for people to sort of think about how things used to be. But But I think it's important to remember that it was harder you know it's easier now didn't you use a wardrobe as a a vocal booth like it sounds like you made it in your bedroom yeah I mean I um still do really I mean I I think if you understand acoustics you know then you can be aware of um what is in a studio why the things in the studio are the way they are and so yeah there's no reason why you can't record a vocal in your wardrobe you just have to make sure that um, you're not getting any reflections. And um, that's really all a studio is. Because I've always recorded the songs myself, I've just evolved a way of, of A, not really needing to do it in a studio. Or I, can, I mean, I can if I want to, but it would have just cost an absolute fortune to record that first album in a studio because, I mean, it took me like a year, really, to do it. So... Um, the end product is supposed to sound quite um, relaxed. And I think that's part of my sound as well is, is recording myself. You're not performing for anyone. It has a different vibe because 
I have had um, engineers and stuff over the years, but it, it sort of changes how I sound. It wasn't really um, I recorded this in my bedroom type thing. It was just that's the only way I can really um, work. And that's something that you've employed for the rest of your career. I'm sort of back to that now. You know, I, I, I have to do it slowly. I have to work very slowly. I can't just sort of um, turn up with a load of lyrics and just... By the time I'm singing a song live, then, then it's, a, it's a different thing. It's a performance then. But I don't perform in the studio, if that makes sense. Often I think the things that you think are going to make you better actually make you worse. It was supposed to be so easy. The Streets 2002 debut album Original Pirate Material gave us Aussies a glimpse into modern British lad life from Mike Skinner's humble bedroom studio. Uh, That record was such an unexpected hit. As you heard Mike Skinner say, their first UK gig was a main stage at Reading Festival. So, with expectations pretty high, Skinner put a bit of extra care into the next record, crafting an epic concept album. He still recorded it in that flat though. If I'd wanted to end up with more now, I should have just stayed in bed like I know how. So I failed on the DVD. A Grand Don't Come For Free tells the story of a relationship with a girl named Simone, a broken TV, and losing and finding a cool £1,000. Here's Mike on how it came about. Yeah, I mean, I guess the first album was um, a lot more popular than, than we expected. I mean, I got really into, like, story as, like, a craft. So, so the second album was, was kind of constructed more like a film script. That was just the road that I went down. And so if you listen to the second album, it's much more about the plot than the words, uh, which is sometimes good and sometimes not. I saw this thing on ITV the other week Said that if she played with her hair she's probably keen She's playing with her hair well regularly So I reckon I could well be in But that's what that album is, it's all about the plot. I really uh, sort of worked that out first before I wrote the songs which I guess is quite rare in uh, music. Uh, and that's what gave it its character, you know. As I said, I'm, I'm making a film at the moment, and, and that's um, really I'm just drawing on all the things that I learned when I made A Grand Don't Come For Free mm. and just sort of um, actually making a film rather than what I did then, which was to make a film into an album. Because you had the story initially, was that hard to yeah. then match, you know, this narrative that you already had kind of set in stone sonically with the, with the sounds? Uh, I, I think all, all songwriting is matching, like, different things together to make them into one thing. Mostly it's matching things that rhyme with something that you're trying to say. And sometimes you think of things that rhyme that happen to say something good or you think of something good and you have to make it rhyme. And that's really all I do is try and find something good to rhyme. And, and it is a bit like a Sudoku. It's not like feelings and, and I mean, it, is, it starts with feelings, but you have to make it rhyme, really, and you have to be understood as well. Being understood and, and rhyming is, 
basic sort of English. And I had to sort of learn all that stuff because I didn't really pay attention at school. <laughs> so um, that's what I do. Ultimately, making something rhyme loses the message. You know, like something that you're trying to say that's really cool. The act of making it rhyme will always make it worse, if you like. Occasionally you might luck out, but it's rare. So it's kind of managing that, um, you know, losing impact and doing it in a way that doesn't sound like that, you know. Yeah. It doesn't sound like you've made it worse because it's easy to just throw a word on the end of the line just to make it rhyme, but people can hear that. And, and so the, the R is, is making it sound like you didn't throw a rhyming word on the end, is just making it sound like that's how it always was. Yeah, the When really it kind of wasn't, really. Totally, totally. Has there ever been a line that you've struck upon and just gone, damn, like that's exactly, if not better, than what I was trying to convey? Uh, yeah, it does happen. Yeah, it does happen that, that, that it makes it better somehow. We, we first met through a shared view. She loved me and I did too, you know. We first met through a shared view. She loved me and I did too. That works really well because the second line is the better line. And the we first met through a shared view is not really how you would say it, maybe, in life. And so if, if I'd have said... She loved me and I did too. We first met through a shared view. That would be a bit clunky. But luckily the clunky bit came first, mm -hmm. so you don't notice it so much. But it also paints such a beautiful picture, you know, like as soon as you say it, it, it you can, you can visualise, you know, looking out at whether it's another set of apartments or a park or, you know, whatever. You, yeah, it becomes yeah, yeah, very yeah, visual. Yeah. It's lovely. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> I got away with that one. You did. Tick. <laughs> You can write a really, really good lyric that sort of speaks to people. You can do that by accident. I think it, many times people have written pop songs that have really spoken to a certain issue that I honestly think they probably weren't intending or weren't expecting. I mean, often people try and repeat it and they can't. So clearly it was an accident. But I think you just have to celebrate life when you do get it right. You've just rolled out, you know, song after song after song. But is that a way that you sort of keep a bit of perspective on it and go, well, it might not be like this forever? I wouldn't say I've rolled out song after song. I've had times where it's felt more straightforward, I guess. Like, I mean, I've written thousands and thousands of songs. Most musicians I know have, and most of them no one has ever heard. It's, it's a more of a sort of long-term obsession yeah and, and at points in that there are points of glory but they are only points in any career i think unless you're drake you know here's mike now taking us through what went into creating two of his biggest hits songs that permeated pop culture and made him a star i'm not trying to pull you even though i would like to I think you are really fit, you're fit, but my gosh, don't you know it? So when I looked at you standing there with your horde... Fit, but you know, it was obviously on, on the Grand Don't Come For Free, which was a story. That album was more than the album before it. It was really just a sort of mishmash of all of the things that had ever happened to me. 
um, and that I'd ever seen. Which lost me my place in the queue I waited for, yeah. But it was also just a way of, of getting the character to, um, to get to the next bit of the story. Mm. I mean, the response to it was absolutely huge. Were you blown yeah. back by that when it was sort of isolated as just a single track, how people responded? I mean, honestly, you know, all I can uh, all I can remember about that song is, um, well, my dad passed away the week it came out, so that was more important uh, at the time. But apart from that, it was um, it was just a sort of being in the middle of a sort of um, massive weather event, you know, and it sort of being weirdly calm in the middle, but so suddenly everything spinning around uh, i mean it's it's very difficult to describe because people don't really want to know or or they uh, or they have an idea of what they think it is but it's it's a bit like you know when you do a, a show you know and people sort of come backstage and they just sort of think that it's like a sort of mad party you know and and um it's just a few people sort of picking their nose in the dressing room you know eating a bag of crisps <laughs> Or another way of putting it is, is that the, the musician is no more part of the song than the audience. Like there's the, the music, you know, you might, have, you might have just sort of like been messing around with a riff. I mean, I remember I rented a Telecaster and I sort of recorded the guitar. I think I was in Battersea, you know, and you sort of think of the phrase and, and you don't really know how you're doing it, you know, because it's just luck, really. Mm. And you just sort of do what you think needs to be done and then um and then all of a sudden it becomes this big thing and actually you're looking at them thinking well I don't know what's happening there as much as they're looking at you going I don't know what happened there either you know what I mean I do I do I know you want to make us see how much this pain hurts but you've got to walk away now dry your eyes I remember a lot more um, I mean, all of them took a long time, but Dry Your Eyes took a lot longer uh, than all the others. And, and um, it was three times longer. So originally, the, the song happens kind of in slow motion, uh, like the verses. And originally, the whole song was the first verse. And then there were two other verses where I can't even remember what happened next. Yeah, I was just sort of listening to it a lot and... I was sort of reading a lot about sort of writers and and I think I probably read somewhere that if the story doesn't feel right, then just sort of slow it down. And it's quite um, an odd thing to do, but I just took the first verse and made it the whole song. I basically slowed everything down, the action, and that's why it sort of feels like it happens in slow motion. Mm. That was the result. With the um, other verses that I'm assuming we we have never heard, was there much more to the story that got let out? Let I, I, I honestly cannot remember. I've oh. probably got a book somewhere. <laughs> yeah, the other thing is um, is I was really really into like showing, not telling, which is it's like the idea that um, if you sort of talk about emotions, then then they're abstractions that the brain can't really deal with. So if you say like love and hate. It, it's not something that the brain can really feel. Whereas if you describe someone sitting on a curb with their head in their hands, even though you're not talking about emotions in any way, 
you're just describing what someone is doing, actually that becomes more emotional in your head because your brain goes, oh, okay, we're sitting on the curb now. We've got our heads in our hands. Dry your eyes or, you know, whatever. It's, it, it becomes emotional. Whereas there's nothing emotional, really, in the words. It's just actions that are happening. And I'm just standing there. I can't say a word. Because everything's just gone. I've got nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's a real craft that the quintessentially British Mike Skinner can come across as someone you might meet down at the local pub, uh, telling a yarn over a couple of drinks. Though, as you're hearing in our conversation, he takes the craft of shaping these songs very seriously. He's working so hard to make something beautiful out of the mundane. That second album, A Grand Don't Come For Free, was a turning point. The streets had turned hip-hop on its head in the early noughties, partly because it was clever, catchy and fun, but mostly because it was relatable. But touring the world, playing festivals, high-profile relationships, that is not everyday life. So how did this newfound celebrity affect his connection with his fans? When you're a famous boy, it gets really easy to get girls. It's all so easy, you get a yeah, I think that album, it didn't have the power of the one before because I think people couldn't see themselves in the songs so much. I was doing really the same thing as I'd done before. And I think everyone who, who sort of achieves some sort of fame has this sort of like light bulb moment when they get that, they suddenly realise that they're no different, they're no better, and they're not happy either. And, and, that, and you know, I can see that, I see that happening to everyone who comes into some sort of, you know, being in the public eye or whatever. Mm. And, and they all respond to it in different ways. But that's, you know, your sort of like difficult second album is, is, um, is really that, it's that response. You know, it's like I've worked my whole life because I thought that uh, if everyone bought my CDs, then I would finally be happy. And everyone buys their CDs and they don't feel any different. So that, you know, behind that album was, was that sort of, I guess, that sort of uh, feeling that everyone goes through. But, but it's not something that people really um, want to hear. They don't want to hear it. The, the sentiment they don't want to hear. So I, th- I think we did really well, actually, considering we were. Se- I was essentially saying something people didn't want to hear. I mean, there's a saying here in Australia, tall poppy syndrome. Do you know that? What does it mean? It's like if, if someone's doing really well and, and people really want to cut them down, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah like you, you've got this success and you're not happy and you're working through it. But then, you know, people don't want to hear you whinging about it because they could they look at you and go, well, you got everything. Yes. Yeah. And, and they're absolutely right. They're absolutely right. Because actually, when you have real problems, like not knowing whether you're going to be able to pay your rent, suddenly all the other problems don't exist. You know, you, you don't have all this like, you know, oh, I want to be, you know, I want to feel like an actualized person in society and, and you know and respected you know no because they need to pay the rent and they, they they're not able to make their repayments on their debts and stuff so yeah they're, they're absolutely right 
But um, I guess the realisation is that um, once you take away those sort of problems, there's a whole load of other problems. I think that's really what it is. But people, when they've got bigger problems, they don't want to know that you, there's a whole load of other problems once you get rid of those problems, you know? Yeah, yeah. Is this something that you reflect on uh, often now in, in subsequent years? No, I, I never think about that stuff. I never think about the past, really. Yeah. Um, but, but you asked. In 2011, Mike Skinner put the streets to rest for what would be the next eight years. Now, seemingly renewed with his time away from the spotlight, the streets comeback tour has been selling out and Mike has been putting out music again. But let's just take a moment to reflect on what has been. How does he feel looking back at his career so far and what's next for the streets? I feel very, very lucky. I just want to make good decisions, really. And so um, I think you can't really look back. I don't think it's good to look back, really, at all, because you'll either just get scared or overconfident. And neither of those things are good. So eyes on the prize with the uh, stuff that you're working on in the moment. Yeah. Where you look is where you'll go. I like that. Look, we were were talking about philosophy and you've just nailed it with a one-liner at the end. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think a better question, if if I can just critique you. Please. I think the best question to ask someone is, what do you regret? That's true of musicians, politics and sports people. So just ask them what they regret. Would that open us up to a whole nother hour conversation, though? Yeah, but if you'd asked it of everyone, then you'd get a massive audience (laughs) um, that you never had before and uh, would be rich and happy. (laughs) Original pirate material. You're listening to the streets. Lock down your aerial. Has it come to this? Original pirate material. You're listening to the streets. Lock down your aerial. You've been playing shows in the UK that have been sold out. You're touring Australia. Fans are really excited to see it. And you've got new music as well. We've already heard a couple of things. So what's next on the cards for the streets? What are you working towards? Uh, Well, the main thing that we're doing at the moment is making a film, hopefully shooting sort of October, November. That's like a musical sort of thing, which is uh, my next proper album, which I've had for a while now. But that won't be coming out until the end of probably next summer your winter and so before then i'm doing a mixtape so i did a i did a record with uh chip called call me in the morning which would be like off that and yeah it's just an album of collaborations really so um i've got um like slow tie on there and uh, jesse james and yeah chip like i said flow hio jimothy but uh, that that will be out in a few months really Amazing, um, And then, yeah, and then, as I say, yeah, film, musical, and album next year. Lurking in the corner, murdered out as always, like we're all in mourning, call me in the morning. Lurking in the corner, murdered out as always, like we're all in mourning, call me in the morning. Listen up in the back. 
So there you have it, insight from the man himself, Mike Skinner. It's been really wonderful to share this conversation with you. And if you'd like to hear more like this one, uh, take a little look back through the other J Files episodes. There's something for everyone. And I'd love it if you hit that subscribe button. You can share it with a friend, leave a review and um, enjoy the music. Finally, as Mike Skinner is a man of the people, let's hear from you, the fans. I'll see you next time. Hi, this is Annalise from Newcastle. I'm going to see The Streets perform in Sydney on Friday. Um, my older sister got me into them when Original Pirate Material came out and they just weren't like anything else we'd ever heard. We love that they did these really funny, piss-taking songs, but also these beautiful, poetic songs. And we might not have related to everything Mikey spoke about, but it made you feel something. And they were just such a soundtrack to our late teens and early 20s when you start going to festivals and going out and it'll just be really great to revisit that time on Friday and it's going to be really nostalgic. Hey guys, this is Ryan from Tamworth. For me, the brilliance of the streets comes from Mike Skinner's ability to perfectly articulate the kind of impossible arrogance and vulnerability of life as a lad in his 20s. Unlike most hungover messes, the philosophy is actually pretty profound and that, to me, is why Mike Skinner's the poet laureate of lad culture. I actually saw Mike Skinner at this tiny little club in Bedford, post the streets, just Mike Skinner on the decks, and every now and again picking up a microphone, and it was amazing. Are you smoking crack Mike, or something? Just leave it. Just leave it. We cannot have that behaviour in this establishment. It's not worth it, Mike. Just leave Don't it. Don't touch me. It's not worth it. Don't touch me. Don't. Look, I'm all right. Don't touch me. The J Files.